Father, thank you for the ability to be together. Church isn't perfect, and this one isn't, but it is good to be centered around your word and to be able to sing and to be ministered to by people we love and who love us, and then to talk about truths that are way beyond ourselves. What a gift. So would you help us today to hear what it is that you want to say, and for I'm sure a small group of people who right now they've come really empty. What a great place to come. Would you fill them with the extravagant grace of Christ? Would this room be a refuge for their soul and a place of healing in the midst of a very broken world? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The church that we call College Park began some 28 years ago. When a group of uh, ten families gathered for their first uh, worship service in the Holiday Inn in Casino Room B. It was a bit of a gamble to get together. So, sorry. Uh, okay. Anyway, it's good. Just a little free. They um, had a vision with the uh, church planning efforts of the IFRBC, the um, Indiana a fellowship of regular Baptist churches, to reach the northern rim of Indianapolis, an area that um, had just started to grow in a suburban sort of way. Kim Kaufman was called as the pastor, a pastor from LaRue, Ohio, and that uh, small group of people began gathering, and through the exposition of God's Word, they began to grow, and grow not only spiritually but also numerically. It wasn't long until they outgrew that space and then had to move to a warehouse. And then in... Um, a few years later, purchased property here at 96th in town, just 10 acres. And then over time, God added more acreage uh, to this plot of land that he's blessed us with. And then in 1992, the first sanctuary was built, which is the place where many of our staff offices are. Sat about 400 people. And the leading technology of the day was an overhead projector. How many of you were in that room at 400? 400 or so, yeah. And then uh, that, that grew about a 1,000 people, and then another sanctuary was built in 1997. That was our former sanctuary, where now the children's space is. Drop your little babies off. That's where the former sanctuary was. And uh, how many of you worshipped in that space, along with our family? Yeah. Remember, those were the days of uh, coming close, or coming early, sitting close, parking far, lots of challenges, competitive seating without sin, you know, all that stuff. It was pretty tight, right? And... Um, Around about that time, church kept growing, about 2,000 or so, and the elders began to sense the need to clarify who we were as a church. As the church grows, things change. New staff comes, culture changes. So who are we as a church? And God's hand had been on this church from the very beginning. And so they crafted not only a mission statement, but also ten historical and cultural values. Those um, were sort of summary statements as to who the church had been historically. How had God worked in the midst of our church? 2008, my family joined this ministry, and early on in that journey, the the elders had already begun a process of refining those historical and cultural principles, and then we began with a team of elders to refine them even more succinctly. And the reason was this, that the mission statement was too long to be remembered, and there were way too many cultural principles that just people didn't know what they were. And and those things are only useful if they're memorable. And so a team of elders began to um, write How would we define our core values? What are the things that define us as a church? What are the things that that really reflect God's story in our midst? What are the things also that would help guide us into our future? And they came up with some core values. I don't know how you feel about core values, but I want you to understand something for a church. Core values really, really matter. And the reason they matter is because of this. Churches change, new people come 
um, culture changes, and God's done something really special in every group of people, but especially in this group of people, and we need to be good stewards of that reality of what God has done in our midst. And so the core values help to shape and mold who we are as a church, as the church continues to change, which it must, as it continues to grow, which it must, how does the church retain its unique identity? You see, there's, there's lots of really good churches in the city of Indianapolis. I was hanging out with one of them um, this week down in the south part of Indianapolis, Indian Creek Christian Church. They're doing great work down on the south side. You know, God's doing great stuff all over the city, and yet there's something unique about our particular church. You're here for a reason. And core values help to identify what that reason is all about. We've tried even to display our core values. As you walk through the atrium, hopefully you see them. They're, they're sort of wrapping around this very room. It's meant to communicate that these values define us as a church and define us in the midst of this room. Our mission as a church, we've prominently displayed that, is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. Everything we do here, from cradle to grave, every single program, every single Sunday, is all about this one singular mission, and it's this. We believe that life is transformed with a glorious relationship with Jesus Christ, and we think that people who have found that relationship ought to be excited, lit up, and ready to take that message to the uttermost parts of the earth or right across the street in their neighborhood. We think that following Jesus is so important and so critical that you ought to see it as the greatest defining moment, passion, and desire in your entire life. So our aim every Sunday is to ignite in you a passion to follow him. College Park won't last, I won't last, you won't last. What lasts is Jesus. He's the focal point. Or as our historical culture principles used to say, it's the main thing is keeping the main one the main thing. We then boil down our um, historic and cultural principles into six key core values. Let me just review those with you. They are the following. The preeminence of Jesus, meaning at the end of the day, it's all about him. Secondly, the authority of the word, that our basis for ministry and our authority comes from the scriptures. The extent to which you're able to change is the extent to which you're able to understand God's word. Life comes not from this mouth, but from this word. It's important for you to understand the scriptures and our authority comes from the Bible. Redemptive community, meaning that we believe that life was not meant to be walked alone, that we ought to do life together And therefore, we design large groups and small groups to be able to help you to do life in community. Unity and diversity, we all come from lots of walks of life, lots of different theological traditions, lots of socioeconomic and racial backgrounds, and we believe that the single uniting factor in all of that is Jesus and Him crucified. More important than anything else is that in the midst of our diversity, there's unity under the banner of the cross. Extravagant grace, we're going to talk all day about that in a moment. And then, finally, the call to go. We just finished a great focus for three weeks on what our focus is in terms of global evangelism and reaching unreached people groups. So these are the values that shape who and what we are as a church. This this mission defines us, and these core values identify not just who we are, but identify how we do life together. This is what makes I think College Park unique. It's one of the reasons why my wife and family came here, because we see God's at work here. It's also why deep in my soul, I say to myself often, Mark, don't mess this up. Because God's at work here. And I would say to you, don't miss the opportunity in front of you. And say to you, don't mess this up. God's brought us for a particular season, for a particular reason, and we've got to figure out as a church what that looks like to be able to reach our city, to reach our world, and to be able to grow in the beauty and the reality of what it means to follow Jesus. So these are the things that have defined us, that have defined us for the last 28 years. Now today we're going to talk about extravagant grace. Not just today, but the next 
two Sundays beyond today for three weeks. Here's how we have defined what we mean by extravagant grace. We say this, we desire to be a community of believers who treat others with the same extravagant grace that God has lavished upon us. You get that? We yearn to demonstrate this grace through our church culture and our lives in a way that is transparent and real and helpful. We are blessed to be a blessing to each other, the city of Indianapolis, and the world. This, this core value of extravagant grace really summarizes uh, three historic and cultural principles. If you've been around here for a while, you may have heard um, statements like this, that we will treat others in a way that reflects how God has treated us. Another one, if we make a mistake, we're going to make it on the side of love. It's a good statement. And then third, we are blessed to be a blessing. So we took all of those and tried to boil it down into two key words, extravagant grace. So we're going to spend some time looking at this idea, this core value, and seeing what the Bible says about it. And let me just give you a couple of reasons why we're doing this. You may wonder, why are we taking three weeks to talk about this core value? Let me explain. First, I think that this idea of extravagant grace is one of the real unique aspects of our, of our church and, and her history. There's, there's stories, and you're going to hear one today, of the ways that God has worked in extravagant grace in our church. And to me, part of who and what we are is embedded in those stories. This idea of extravagant grace was one of the things that attracted my wife and I to come here. And I'm convinced it's one of the reasons why God has blessed this church is because of extravagant grace. Secondly, there are other core values that are highlighted throughout the year through various spotlight events. So, uh, for instance, the, the, the value of the call to go. We just highlighted that in reach. Uh, the, the, the value of redemptive community is highlighted when we do live. But extravagant grace isn't really a spotlight value. It's rather, it's, it's like a flavor value. It doesn't define necessarily what we do as much as it defines how we do everything. So while not having a spotlight, it's really, really important. But I want to take a couple weeks just to put a spotlight on this core value. And there's a third reason, and it's this, that extravagant grace is easy to lose. I don't say that because I think we're losing it as a church, but I just know that personally and corporately, extravagant grace is really easy to lose. Small churches can lose it, and so can large churches. Uh, individuals can lose it, and families can lose it. What I mean is this, is that as you get older or as things change, there are a thousand reasons why you shouldn't be extravagantly gracious. You can think of all sorts of rationale and, and, and reasons. And in fact, one of the challenges has... Um, church gets more understandably complicated with 4,000 plus people, there's, there's lots of reasons not to be extravagantly gracious with all of the well-developed forms and high-functioning programs and even important and needed policies. A church can really lose this value. It can be easy to find ways to justify why we shouldn't be filled with extravagant grace. So this value, I think, is so important and so critical to who we are that I want to be sure we don't lose it, that we don't lose some of the stories, and that we think about how can we even explore this whole arena in new ways. I want you to pray with me about how we can become even better with extravagant grace personally and as a church. I want you leaving today and entering your world on Monday with a different lens, a lens that's colored by extravagant grace. So... Let's start. 
Romans 5 with the gospel. The starting point of, of, of extravagant grace is the gospel. This is where we need to begin. And the reason is, is that extravagant grace has no meaning apart from the gospel. If you divorce extravagant grace from the gospel, two things can happen. In the first place, you'll end up doing good for good's sake and good's sake alone. Now understand something, there's a, 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 a movement within evangelicalism, evangelical Christianity, to do good. And, and I'm not opposed to doing good, but here's what I'm nervous about. I see a lot of doing good with no connection to the gospel. If you just do good for good's sake, you'll feel better for a little bit. But after your guilt wears off or after the project is done, people will only be left with um, better facilities, better feelings, better provision. But the fact of the matter is, is that the issue of their soul won't be addressed. On the other hand, you could just preach the gospel to them, but meanwhile they're hungry and they don't have water or they're homeless. So you've got to address the, those needs. And so here's what we try and do. We want to do good for gospel's sake. There's a difference. We do good so we can build bridges of grace that can then bear the weight of truth. Like tonight, we're having a concert here for the Midwest Food Bank. And we partner with them to give food away. But we don't do that just to give food away. We do that for the opportunity to platform the gospel on top of that food. So we do good for gospel's sake. So if you divorce extravagant grace from the gospel, you'll just end up doing good. And good is good, but it's not good as it should be, unless it's connected to the gospel. The second reason we need to connect it to the gospel is this. And let's be honest. If we let our hearts do what they are naturally conditioned to do, we might be gracious, but we won't be extravagantly gracious. We'll be gracious just enough to give an impression that we're kind when internally we're thinking, oh, brother. We'll be polite, but not merciful. We'll be giving, but not really generous. We'll extend grace, but we won't be extravagant. And what, what the gospel does is the gospel pushes our grace, it pushes our giving, it pushes our generosity, it pushes our demeanor beyond just the bare minimum of what we would do because of social pressure or what you should do because it's just right. Extravagant grace is motivated by the gospel in that you see the beauty of what God has done for you in Christ and therefore you are compelled to be like God in your world. You are compelled to lavish upon people the same grace that you have been a recipient of. So the reason the gospel is important is because of good and because of the limitations of our own soul. So let's see what Romans 5 says tells us about the gospel and then we'll connect it to extravagant grace the first thing is this sinners need grace by the way everything i'm going to tell you today if you've been in church for like a month this this is you're like i could have preached this sermon well you come and try okay so the the the, 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 the outline is very evident okay and it's not super intellectual but here's the deal the problem with extravagant grace is we all know we should do this the challenge is is that we leak we forget verse 15 says this but the free gift is not like the trespass let me let me set up what's going on here paul in romans 5 and i think it's in 2000 and the end yeah the end of 2014 will be in romans 5 in a roman study in, in the, no, it's 2015. 
It's not 2018, just so you know. So it's 2015. I figured it out this weekend. We'll dive into this more specifically then. But here's what it means. Paul is contrasting the fall of Adam and the sacrifice of Christ that eclipsed Adam's fall. So in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned, and the effect of that was cataclysmic. Everything turned south. And what he's doing is contrasting the beauty of Christ's redemption and how it eclipsed the problem of the fall. And that's why in verse 15 it says, the free gift, that's Christ's death, is not like the trespass, that's Adam's fall. So that's what's what's going on. Now, go back to verse 12, and we'll see what happens. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so sin comes into the world and death is the consequence, so death spread to all men because all sin. In other words, in Adam, as the first male, first human being, and Eve, the the effect of their fall was that every single person post-Adam and Eve are now infected with the reality of the brokenness of our world. The fall introduced sin, and with sin introduced brokenness and hardship and suffering and imperfection and death. The fall introduced all of these things into the human experience. That's why the Bible says death spread to all men. And that means that the whole world and every single human being is foundationally tainted by sin and mankind's relationship with God was globally altered. Everything fell. Two weekends ago, I was with my sons. We were touring a Christian college on their first campus visit. We sat in a microbiology class. It was way over my head. I sit in the back row going, man, is she smart. And I have no idea what she's saying. But this I understood. She's showing this, this cell and, and talking about how cancer, how they think cancer happens and what can go wrong with all of your cells. It was uh, in a um, sort of a, a genetic mutation uh, a segment within their their. their their class, and it was uh, all the things that could go wrong. And as she lists all the ways that a cell could break down, it was, frankly, it was stunning. It was a little freaky. I mean, it's like thinking, like, like there's stuff that's going wrong in my body all the time. And, and as she drew that cell on the board and explained all the things that could go wrong, she said, now here's a, a cell that's absolutely perfect, but this cell doesn't really even exist any, anymore because the reality is something's gone wrong with the whole structure of creation and even at a cellular level, everything is broken. And then she paused and said, and by the way, this is a great example of the evidence of the fall. That we are so broken that it affects even the very aspect of who we are in our cells. That our cells, our cellular structure, our DNA has fundamental flaws into it. That it appears as though there was one time when everything was right, but now something is terribly wrong. And the answer is that is correct. The Bible says that the fall happened. What you need to understand is that this is the condition of every human being. Go back to chapter 5 and verse 6 and notice that the effect of this is that Human beings are weak, it says, for while we were still weak, that doesn't mean physically weak, it means spiritually weak. It means that left to ourselves, we'll do wrong things. If, if you don't believe this, just have kids, right? I mean, just left to themselves, it'll, it'll go south all the time. That's why they need babysitters and structure and um, inter, in-home uh, NSA monitoring and things of that sort, right? Because you've got to know what's going on, all right? Verse 8. God shows his love to us, and while we were still sinners, the Bible describes this condition as we are sinners, and we're not just sinners in what we do. Listen, we're sinners in who we are. You don't have to teach your kids how to lie, how to cheat, how to steal. They, they, they have an inerrant um, ability in, to be able to do that on their own. 
Verse 10. The effect of this is that our sin has made us the enemies of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. So our condition is that we are enemies of God. So what you need to know as we start here is that, church, this is the condition of the entire world. This is... This is the commonality of the human experience. Every single human being born into the world is broken. Their heart isn't complete. And so while there is beauty, and while there is rest, and while there are moments of great happiness, the reality is we live in a very broken and fallen world, and the Bible correctly diagnoses the problem of the human condition. It is that sinners need grace. This is really important that you understand this. Because when you see things on the news, like a guy who walks into Los Angeles International Airport and starts shooting people, and now you go into your office place on Monday, and people are like, what is wrong with this world? you got to step up in that moment. You have to speak and tell them, I know what's wrong with the world. I know what's wrong with the world. When people look around, they're just like, the world is so messed up, it's so broken. It is. And the beautiful thing is the Bible correctly diagnoses that problem And the beautiful thing is it also gives the solution. So as the world, if it gets worse and worse or things around you begin to fall apart, don't panic and said, step up and say, I know what's wrong with the world. It's a brokenness because of sin and only Jesus can fix it. It is a great opportunity to speak into it because every human being has the same need. Sinners need grace. So Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5, so why do we start here? We start here because the need for grace in our world is huge. Everyone has the same problem. And here's the other thing. The only entity in the world that's been given the solution to that problem is the church. We are the guardians, the carriers of the message of Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners. And therefore, the church, that's you, it's me. It's not just the corporate church, it's individual people. As you go out into this community, you are the ones who are to declare boldly the message that the world needs help, and the answer is Jesus. So one of the reasons why we're talking about this core value is because if the church doesn't talk about extravagant grace, then who will? Grace is what people need. Grace is what the church's mission is all about. And yet we tend to forget about this important aspect of the church's role in the world. One of my dreams for our church, I don't know when it's going to happen, three years, five years, ten years down the road, I don't know when it's going to happen, but a dream is that we have so many trained lay counselors who can handle God's word in a very proficient way, dealing with life's problems, that there will be a day when we'll be able to open up our counseling services, our soul care ministry, not just to people inside the church, but actually people into the community. Can you imagine what a message that would say? Hey, if you need help, and if you're broken, and if no one really cares, or you don't know what's going on in your soul, why don't you come in here, and we'll have people open the scriptures with you, and we're going to try and figure out what's really going on. Because actually, we, we, we know what the fundamental need of the human heart is. Is it complicated? Is it layered? Sure it is. It's not overly simple. But at the end of the day, you boil it down. And the fact of the matter is Jesus came to the world to save sinners. Sinners need grace. That's the first thing. Secondly, again, it's simple, but it's important to remember that Jesus brought grace. Look at verses 15 to 19. Paul identifies that Jesus brings this grace that solves the problem of the brokenness of the world. Look at verse 15. It tells us that the gift of Jesus abounded for many He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, meaning 
if, if the whole world fell under Adam's transgression, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus, abounded for many. So the whole message from this point on is that grace eclipses the problem of sin. Verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. When Adam fell, death came into the world and there was condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. In other words, while Adam's sin brought condemnation and judgment, now the free gift brings justification, which means that in Christ... He pays for your sins such that you stand before God and God treats you as though you've never violated his law. It's unbelievable. Verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, so death has a reigning effect, it seems really, really powerful, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. So again, as death reigns, so Jesus Christ and his righteousness reigns. The idea is what happened in sin and death is conquered by the power of Christ. Verse 18, a reversal of the curse has already begun Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life, not just eternal life, but life even now, life for all men. So the idea is that Jesus is going to come again and he's going to take everything that happened that was so wrong with the curse and he's going to completely make it new. And can you imagine what that day would be like? No sin, no temptation, no death, no devil. No, no longings to do the wrong thing. It's all righteousness all day long. It's all Jesus and all you, and it never ends and it never ever could end. That is beautiful and glorious, isn't it? Can't wait for that day. And until that day, we're in this moment where that happens in part. So we long for that day to come, but until that day comes, we live in the here of now where we experience part of that. And verse 19 is the capstone. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Again, that's Adam. So by the one man's obedience, that Christ, the many will be made righteous. So on a personal level, what that means is this. That God, if you've received Christ, what God did in your life is this. God took your sin, all of it, past, present, and future, as scandalous as that is, He took it all and he put it on Christ and took Christ's death and atonement and then put that on you. The Bible calls that the divine exchange. He declared Christ guilty and declared you free. He took out his punishment on Jesus so he could treat you kindly. He took all of his wrath on Christ so he could adopt you as his son. And the effect of this now is that all of your sin has been washed away. That's why when we sang that song, Oh, the blood of Jesus that washes me. What's the washing? It's the washing of all the things that I've done because of my brokenness and every aspect of that, Jesus is cleansed. That is, there is freedom that you can't imagine apart from the work of Christ. Is that God was kind to us beyond words. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says this, You know the grace of our Lord, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Think of that. 
He was rich, but he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So when you see this, it changes, it changes how you live. In fact, so much so that 1 John says this. Listen to what John says. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word, let us not love, rather, in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So the idea is this. If you understand what extravagant grace is, if you meditate on it, think on it, you've experienced it, then the effect of having received this level of extravagant grace is that it's going to affect the way that you treat other people. It must. It has to. If it doesn't, and the question is, do you really understand what extravagant grace is in the first place? Sinners need grace. Jesus brings grace. Here's the third thing, and I love this. At the end of the day, grace wins grace wins verse 20 now the law came to increase the trespass but where sin increased grace abounded all the more do you know how frustrating it must be to be the devil seriously everything you try you tempt people and they fail and you may win a little bit but then God's forgiveness comes in and it trumps everything that you do. You get this grand plan. The sun comes to the earth. Here's what we'll do. We'll kill him. We'll hang him on a tree. He'll be cursed and no one will ever look to him. And so the devil works out this plan. He hangs Jesus on the tree and it accomplishes the redemption of the world. <laughs> That's frustrating. <laughs> so why, is he, why does the devil keep at it? Because he hates the glory of God that much and wants to bring as many people with him to his diabolical end, which he knows at the end of the day won't really win. And so listen to me. God can take even the most horrific act of the murder of his own son and transform it into the means of grace. Some of you need to understand that because you're in a really dark place and you look around you and you're like, how in the world is this ever going to turn out for good? And I'm telling you that if God could transform the death of the murder of his own son, he can transform whatever it is that you're walking through. At the end of the day, grace wins. You may look, I've blown it so many times in my life. I've got this long track record of horrible sin. Right, and God's grace can conquer that, provided that you'll humble yourself, you'll repent, and you'll run to Jesus and get over the fact that you're the problem. When you embrace, I'm the problem, and I need help, that's when God's grace comes. Where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. It means that as big and as wide and as huge as our sin is, God's grace covered it all. So then the question is this. So what do we do with this and how do we live this out? You need to understand that extravagant grace is first a theological issue, but it's also a very practical issue. It relates very, very much about how you live in a broken and fallen world. I mean, when you leave here, even in our own hallways, you're going to run into broken people. Our church is full of broken people. Broken people are welcome here. You're going to run into broken people. And you know what people in this hallway, or you go out to eat somewhere, you drive along the road, you go to work, even little kids in your own home, teenagers as they grow up, we're all broken. What's going to happen is people are going to be impatient. 
They're going to be unkind. They're going to be rude. They're going, to, they're going to treat you in a way that you don't deserve. And the question that you have to deal with every single day is if I've experienced extravagant grace, how am I to treat people like, who, who treat me like this? Am I going to be as sinful as they are? Am I going to be wicked like, like them? I mean, you realize that there are people in this world, they, they, are, they, are, they are broken, they're hurting, they're sinful, they're mean, they're angry, they're just like you, right? But you found the grace of God. So the question is, what difference does that make in how you live? Extravagant grace means that I've been overwhelmed by God's grace and I'm going to go into a world that's fundamentally flawed and broken and yet I can pour out grace. Let's go a little deeper. It means that when someone does something against you that's really unfair, they wound you or hurt you, you have such a knot in your stomach, like, I cannot believe they would violate my trust like that. I can't believe they would talk to me like this. They're my friend, and look at what they did. And then you have to forgive them. Where does forgiveness come from when you have been sinned against so terribly? It doesn't come from you. It comes instead from the overwhelming grace of God that you realize the billions of sins that God has covered of yours in the death and the blood of Jesus. And out of the overflow of that forgiveness, you can then forgive others. And it also means that if you're the recipient of God's grace, both from God and from others, you are humbled and you are resolved that you're not going back. There's another application. Church, we live in a world where terrible things happen. Because of the brokenness of the world, accidents take place. In the last couple months, I've done some of the most gut-wrenching funerals, been a part of them. Just been reminded of just the brokenness of our world. And when the brokenness of the world happens, it's an opportunity for extravagant grace to shine. If anybody understands brokenness in the world, it's people who've experienced God's extravagant grace. If anyone's going to extend grace to hurting people, when, when the bottom is dropped out in life, or when, when, a, when a crisis happens, or something takes place, and they don't know up from down, or left from right, or when they wonder, how in the world are we going to make it? That is the moment when the church should shine through and say, we are here because we know extravagant grace. We're going to help you. We're going to walk you through that. And in those seasons, in that moment, it is an opportunity to platform the gospel. So when that happens around you, don't miss that. Those sort of stories of God's grace have been a part of this church's history. Moments when, as a church, we rallied around a, a family or a, a moment of, of crisis. And those are things I don't want us to ever forget. Some of you have been around here for a long time will remember the story of um, what happened to the Ware family. Dr. Charles Ware, the president of Crossroads Bible College, was gracious enough to be here today to be able to recount the story. And so I want to, for some of you to be reminded and others of you to hear the amazing story of what God did in his family, in his son's life, through this church's understanding of extravagant grace. So, brother, come on. God bless you. Great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Well, amen. Thank you. Pastor Mark, uh, indeed, um, February 1998, I was out on the West Coast in uh, Washington State preaching for a seminary out there. Got a phone call from my executive VP, and he said that uh, one of your children have been injured. They're taking him to the hospital. Do you want the number? And I said, yes, please give me the number. I called, they answered, and they said, yes, your son has uh, suffered a C4 fracture. He's broken his neck. Your wife is coming down the corridor now. Do you want to speak with her? And I said, yes, please. So Sharon got on the phone and she was crying. 
And she said, Matt has been injured. It doesn't look good. I have to leave now. They were, they were rushing her to get up. And so she had to, she had to hang up on the phone. I went to the president of college. They prayed for us. I got a flight out about 1 a.m. in the morning. And, and there as I was flying, I was thinking to myself, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've just been trying to serve you. I'm preaching your word. My son's broken his neck. There's no way that we can take care of a son like that with me not have with the job I've got. I've got to leave the ministry, get two or three jobs if need be, but I've got to take care of my son. And in that seat, God reminded me of Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And, and, and God just reminded me, listen, you gave me your life as a living sacrifice shortly after you became a believer. Your job is continue to be a living sacrifice. And then he reminded me, he said, Matt, I knew Matt before you did. We adopted Matt. He came into our home uh, three days after he was born. And God said, I knew him before he was born. I put him in your home. I've taken care of him for these six 16 years. I'll take care of him now. And, and my tears and things, I just had peace. And I came back to Indianapolis and I got to Indianapolis. And um, upon my arrival, I went to the hospital and, and there's Matt with uh, uh, tubes all over him. And, and he's there and the doctor said he'd be paralyzed from the shoulders down. He couldn't move anything. And, and Sharon was there and we were all distraught, not knowing what we were going to do. But Things began to unfold for me a little bit. I've got a little bit of the story. It was in a newspaper article that uh, when Matt was hurt, they called Sharon. She, when she got to the place, they had him on a stretcher, and they were taking him to the stretcher to put him on an ambulance, and she ran weeping, crying over her, her, her teenage son who, 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 who one moment was playing basketball, the next moment flat on his back, can't move, and, and she was crying. And he looked her in the eyes and said, Mom, pull yourself together. Remember God's in control. And... Um, Amen. So, um, so from that we began to get other factors that unfolded and, and, and the church just came around. I found out that, that I was really distorted that I couldn't be there with Sharon and all this has happened, but I found out that a group of people from the, from the church, the, uh, pastors and, and others went to the hospital. A, a doctor from College Park went there to explain to her what this, what this, uh, uh, broken nake meant and, and, and all of that and just comforted her and, and, and once I got in uh, the church began their prayers was there visits was there cards came even uh, uh, the church decided the wares don't have time to be fixing food we, we need to fix a meal freeze it and so they can pick it up anytime they want it so they asked for freezers and, and they wanted one freezer they got about three freezers and the pastor stop we don't need any more freezers and um, <laughs> And, and they had food in there for us to pick up. And, and that was such, such a great help to us at that particular time. And, 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 and doctors would visit Matt in the hospital. In fact, I think all the nurses is on high alert because they never knew when a doctor would be coming through. And, um, and, 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 and all these gifts that was going on. And then the church said that we want to take up a one-time offering to help the Ware family. On a, on a Sunday night, they took up $167,000 to create the Matt where trust fund and we praise God for that amen and um, through other personal gifts and, and helps from the church we were able to move into a handicapped adapted home completely debt free 
then, then this story began to get legs on it and extended in other places. It, it was in the newspapers, in the magazines. In fact, Matt was in the Indiana Women's Magazine. I never figured that one out. But, but, but the, the, the radio, the television uh, deals. And, and, and when Billy Graham came into this area for Billy Graham Crusade, one of the three testimonies they used for Youth Night was Matt's story. So, so this, this, this story has just gone everywhere. And I often say to myself, one reason I'm still in the ministry today is because God's people at College Park came around our family and, and made it such that God kept me in the ministry at Crossroads Bible College, for which we are eternally grateful. And then we were so excited, I thought I'd never see that day. But on July 6th of this year, I was able to, to unite Mary, uh, <laughs> Mary, Matt and Erica in uh, matrimony. They got married and they live about five minutes from us, built a brand new home, and uh, we just praise God and say thank you. Yeah, yeah Matt's here today. Just said that. Thank you, God. Thank, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Matt and Erica, thanks for coming today. God bless you, and uh, thanks for being here to motivate us to think about the impact of extravagant grace. Church, I want to remind you, at the end of the day, I know the world's broken. I know lots of bad stuff happens. I know some of you are in the bottom of the bottom. You're in a dark season right now. I just want to remind you, at the end of the day, grace wins. And it's not just at the end of the end of the day, like when Jesus comes, oh, that'll be a great and glorious moment when, when we see him and we will see him as he is because we will be like him. But even now, in the meantime, we need to be reminded that grace can still win in small little ways. When someone's rude, you be kind. When someone has wronged you, you forgive. Grace wins. When there's a need, meet it. Grace wins. In the midst of the storm of life when things are really broken and it seems as though the devil is winning and sin is rampant and death is more than just our enemy, it's our deep, deep foe. In the midst of all of that, we have an opportunity to say, you know what? Grace is greater. Paul said where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So go this week and live and breathe and give in extravagant grace. Lord, thank you that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And for people who are here today who are in a dark place, would you remind them that your grace can still win? Father, thank you for stories like the wares and what you did. Thank you. It, it, it helps embolden our weak faith that it's not been an easy journey for them. And yet in the midst of it all, your grace has been greater. It's so beautiful. So help us to be the kind of people who live out that grace and who breathe grace and who give in extravagantly gracious ways. So a world will know the difference that Jesus makes. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Afterwards, there'll be some folks up here who'd love to pray for you if you have a need in your life, okay? So they're here to bless you and help you. I love you, College Park. Thanks for coming. God bless you.